Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today, I could not be more excited to bring you an episode with a newly amateur runner, Nick Simmons. So Nick is a former professional runner. He is a two-time Olympian, a silver medalist in the World Championships in the 800 meters at his peak he was running the low to mid 140s in the 800 meters, just an absolute stud professional athlete. And last June, he retired from professional running and upon doing so, decided to run a marathon. So he ran the Honolulu Marathon a couple months ago and just did a great job. He ran in three hours and 35 seconds, nearly broke the three-hour barrier. And for him, that near miss has inspired him to keep it going. So he's going to run one more marathon, and he announced two days ago, that he's going to be running the Eugene Marathon. And this was a big announcement. He made it uh, via social media, and it's going to be potentially his last race, and he's doing a lot of promotional work around that for the company he's uh, that he's a CEO of, Run, Run Gum, which he actually started in 2014, just prior um, just prior to retiring. So he's a, just a lot, of, a lot of things going on with Nick. Uh, definitely a... Uh, just a wonderful athlete, but in addition to that, someone who does a lot for the sport and someone who's just active in business as well. So it's really just a fascinating guy all around. In this episode, we talk not only about his upcoming race in Eugene, but also about the Honolulu Marathon, the training he has done and is doing for both, uh, how he got started in Run Gum, and how what he does in that company is something that you know kind of tailors. Basically, it goes back to what he did as an athlete in terms of branding himself and working on the marketing side and what he's able to bring to Run Gum in that capacity. And uh, before we get into the episode, I just want to do a quick thank you to everybody. There's been a lot of people sharing this podcast in uh, recent weeks, and I just have to tell you, it means the world to me. And frankly, it gets it gets people kind of into the into the rambling runner community. So this past week. We actually broke the top 100 iTunes sports podcast list, got all the way up to number 86, which is just, uh, I mean, it just blows my mind when I'm thinking about it. It really is phenomenal. It's far more successful than I ever thought this podcast would be, and it's a testament to the great guests, guests like Nick Simmons, but you know, people who might not be household names, but who are just doing wonderful things and running, and it's, it's fun to talk to those people and to showcase their efforts because what they're able to do in their lives and in their running is inspirational and motivational for me. And if you feel the same way, it's wonderful to see that you share it. And it, uh, it definitely means a lot to me. And if you continue to do so, I'm going to continue to be thankful. So if you review it on iTunes and you share it, uh, again, I just, I just have to say thank you. It really is appreciated. So that's enough about me. That's enough about the podcast in general. Let's break it down. Let's talk to Nick Simmons. Hello, Nick, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. It's, it's great to have you on. And uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, you know, this is a podcast for dedicated amateur runners. And while you certainly are a dedicated runner, you're not the, the traditional amateur runner. So I do appreciate you coming on. Yeah, no, my pleasure. And, and I am an amateur now. I recently ended my pro career, and I love being a hobby jogger and um, you know, I, I have a great relationship with running now as an amateur. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a, you know, you're still in the novice stages of being an amateur and as someone who's been an amateur his whole life, let me tell you, it really is something <laughs> else. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Well, I'll tell you what. One thing I th I found interesting. You mentioned, you know, you you recently, you know, you gave your professional career and you're you know, you're you're doing the hobby, you know, the hobby joggy stuff. And with that being said, I thought one part that was interesting about your career as a professional runner and as one of the best 800 runners of this generation is how how like basically how long you would do your long runs you know, you do 12 and 13 mile long runs consistently and i just found that to be fascinating is that best practices for 800 meter runners you know i i always believed in speed from strength and my coaches did as well and so we really trained more like a miler i i mean it was it was kind of wild on fridays i'd be doing 200s in 23 seconds and then the next day i'd go for a 13 mile run so we really hit everything between you know from A to Z and everything in between. And while I wouldn't necessarily say it's typical of 800 meter runners to get that high, it's certainly not unheard of, especially if you're more of an 815 guy like I was. Okay, and when you would do the 12 or 13 mile run, was that more at an easy pace or was it? Was there any structure to that run? No structure, just out for a run. And there were days where I was just, you know, barely able to put one foot in front of the other. And there were days that I felt incredible and could click off 615 miles without too much trouble. Um, you know, that's the thing about 800 meter training is you're just kind of always pushing that envelope and, and really trying to test, test your body in a lot of different ways. Right. Because it really, it, it taxes the aerobic and anaerobic system. So do you feel like you had to train both of them? Oh, all year long. Yeah. I mean, certainly more of a aerobic focus in the fall and more of an anaerobic focus in the spring, but you really want to stay in touch with both systems year round. Got it. And then when you were training for the Honolulu Marathon, where you ran three hours and 35 seconds, you, your, your, your long run in that prep was 15 miles. Now, was that something that you consciously decided beforehand, or was that something that just kind of came about because of your injury, uh, you know, after the, uh, the yeah. half marathon that you ran in October? Yeah, I think, I think ideally I'd like to have worked my way up to about 20 miles, you know, 20 miler before Honolulu would have helped, but I had a lot on my plate. I was traveling quite a bit, working hard at Run Gum, and I did get that injury um, about two, six weeks out um, that held me back for two weeks. So, uh, you know, you got to, you just, I don't think any marathon preps ever exactly how you want it to go. Um, you can't, you can try to script it and force it, but at some point you got to listen to your body. And, and so all I was able to get in was a 15 miler in the lead up to Honolulu. It was kind of cool because once I got out there, I didn't know what to expect. So I was a little nervous, but uh, every single step that I took after the 15 mile mark, I was kind of exciting because it was new and uncharted territory for me. And to be doing something new and uncharted in running after having done it nearly every day for 20 years was really exhilarating. That's a great point. And that, that is pretty funny because that's not, you know, when you have a, you know, that, I guess that positive mindset after the 15 mile mark, that's usually where people start you know, they, they kind of go from chatty to a little bit more concentrated and maybe starting to hit the wall a little bit. So it's nice to kind of get that little pick me up kind of, kind of right in the right in the middle there. Yeah, absolutely. So for you, especially when you have this this injury after the half after the half marathon in October, see you're you're in a unique spot where you have kind of the publicity and the fame that comes with being a professional athlete at the highest level. You're in the Olympics, you're getting a silver marathon, and a silver medal in the world championships. Sorry about that. And then you also have kind of the, uh, the opposing experience where you're also a novice at the same time. So what was it like for you kind of balancing the two of all of a sudden you have a spotlight on you, but yet you're trying something for the first time, but doing it in a kind of a public way. 
Well, one one thing I did in my entire career uh, as a pro and now as an amateur is I, I've always been hyper transparent with my training. And there were years where I'd go into a, a U.S. championship and I'd say things like, I'm going to win this race because my preparation has been absolutely perfect. I, I've never been this fit before. And I meant it. And I didn't mean it in an arrogant way. I'm just hyper transparent. There were also years where I went into races and I said, it'll take a miracle for me to win this because I am out of shape, overweight, and I did not prepare the way I wanted to for this race. And I wasn't sandbagging. I just legitimately felt that way. Um, and, you know, I've published my training logs before. I've, I've published most of my training going into Honolulu, and I'm publishing all my training in preparation for my next marathon. I'm not a, I'm not a bullshitter. If I say I'm in shape and I'm going to crush it, believe it. And if I say I'm overweight and out of shape and not going to, you know, barely be able to finish, believe that. And so it takes some of the pressure off me being that guy, being hyper-transparent and just saying, here's my expectations, here's my goals, I think they're realistic. Um, you, can, you can call me arrogant or you can call me a sandbagger, but you know, at the end of the day, I'm just out here running because I love to run. And then I guess, I guess the opposing view of that would be that you would potentially lose kind of a competitive advantage by being transparent. Do you ever feel like that, that ever happened for you? I think that there are athletes where they would feel that way. And I know, I know a ton of athletes that are super secretive with their training and always want to have a mental edge on somebody. You know, for me, I stand on that line and I, I bring a hundred percent. I've, I was always, I, and I, I have a lot of flaws in this as an athlete. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's some serious areas where I'm lacking, but the one thing I never lacked was gaming up when that gun went off. And I didn't really need to play mental games with my, with my competitors. I didn't need to feel like I had the secret. I, I just did the work and I stood on the line and whatever was in the tank was going to be spent. And so I, I didn't feel that I needed that, you know, that secrecy or that, you know, edge on athletes. I, I just felt like if I work hard, I, I'm a gamer and I'll game up on the day. And, you know, True to form, that's what I had to do in Hawaii. Having not ever run more than 15 miles in my life before, I knew that once once I went into that uncharted territory, I was just going to have to game up. Right, and that's a good point because it was a little bit different than your professional running career where you'd say, hey, you could kind of predict exactly how you were going to run in that race, right? You had you know decades of experience. You could oh, look, yeah. you can compare apples to apples of like, hey, when I, I ran the Diamond League event <laughs> last year, I did this and this and this, where this time – you know, you, you really had no idea what you're going to be capable of. In, in the eight during my prime, I could have told you within a quarter second what I was going to run that day. Which is and, hysterical because I've seen your races and you're like yeah, all over with, the place in terms of like the first 400 meters. That's what it looks like to you. But in my mind, I'm metering out my energy absolutely perfect to the to the per- tenth of a percent. And, you know, when you do something that long and, and that many times and you just know – how you're feeling on the day, I really could have predicted within a quarter second what I was going to run with near perfect certainty. But then going into the marathon, I had to, I had to, you know, I wanted to be honest about my goals, but I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I think I maybe could break three hours or maybe I don't break four hours. I blow up at mile 20 and I have to walk in. You know, I just, I have zero data to go on here. So I, I really was, I thought, I said, I think I'm going to run three hours and change. I don't know how much change there's going to be. Uh, and it ended <laughs> up being 35 seconds worth of change instead of 35 minutes. But uh, I, like I said, pe- people were saying, oh, well, that's BS. And it was so funny because people either thought I was sandbagging and I was going to run like 230 because I'm a pro. And of course I should be able to do that, which is ludicrous to think. Oh or God. they'd say, they'd say he's, he's, you know, old and overweight and fat. And he's not even going to be able to finish the thing. 
And so those were the, like what people were saying. I'm like, no, I mean, I think I can, I think I can tough it out and run three hours and change. And that's exactly what I ended up doing. But at the same time, you did mention that there were days in your training where you felt like you might not even be able to break four hours. I mean, what what were those days like? Like, what when you say that, what are you alluding to? You know, those days where you've got little little injuries bothering you, and you're like, "This is going to keep me from finishing," or days where you're just exhausted, and you're like, "I don't know if I actually can run 26 miles." I just did a, you know, I would do some 13 or 14 milers in the middle of a heavy week of training or, or a heavy week of travel. And I'm like, I have run 14 miles and I am totally spent. Like I need two or three days to recover from this. And those are the days where you're like, man, I, I'm not barely halfway towards my goal of finishing a marathon, but you know, there's something to be said. And I keep using this phrase and I don't want to overuse it, but gaming up on the day, there's something about having 20 some thousand people around you, carrying you along and, and knowing that you've trained for it and taking that, seizing the moment seizing that opportunity um i used to be known as a really really terrible trainer and i i'm probably still to this day i'm one of the worst trainers you're going to meet i'm lazy and i don't hit times like i probably should and but when the gun goes off when it counts for something when it's a race situation you know i don't know if it's mental or physical but i wake up and i i bring you know an a plus product on that day Got it. And obviously that's a skill in and of itself because you have to have a lot of confidence to do that and not be kind of weighed down by some of your past experiences. And, you know, for a lot of athletes, some of those negative moments or negative runs can be, can feel more consequential than the positive workouts, you know, especially yeah, if they're, you know, for sure. if it's a long run, if it's a long run and you say, Hey, this is like a benchmark workout. And it's like, oh, shoot, like I didn't hit that tempo run at all. Like, what am I going to be able to do a month from now? Yeah. Yeah. And I know I know I've felt both of those feelings before the euphoria from a great workout and the depression from a bad workout. Um, and I think as I got older, I really learned to kind of smooth that roller coaster out. And, you know, instead of being, like I said, euphoric versus depressed, it was kind of like, oh, that was a good one. Or oh, that was kind of a bad one. Because you come to understand just how many variables go into making um, a workout. And you've got to take into account what you ate and how you slept and the volume and the travel. And, you know, more often than not, a good workout is not as good as you think it is. And a bad workout's not as bad as you think it is. That's a good point. Yeah, you do have to keep like a, a level-headed mindset with that. And when you're doing your training now, you know, for your upcoming marathon and when you're doing it for the Honolulu Marathon, was there a difference for you in terms of the mindset each day for a training session? Because thinking back to when you did it as a pro, it was like, this is your job. You need to do it. You have sponsors. You have goals. You have kind of the, the publicity that goes along with some of these events you'll be running in. Whereas if you skip a workout, you know, is you know, you're just like, hey, I'm just trying to run a run a marathon here. There's no real, you know, no, there's no real pressure in terms yeah. of how you finish. Did you feel like it was easier to potentially skip a workout yeah. if you're super oh, busy, not get that workout in? Yeah, I mean, the only pressure was pressure I put on myself, and uh, it actually made it a lot tougher to train. It's it's really easy to train when you have the pressure of competing in front of 1.4 billion people at an Olympic stage. You just you don't miss a workout and you eat healthy and you get your sleep because you want to be great. Um, as a hobby jogger who wants to sort of have a good showing, but mainly just finish a marathon, you drink more beer and you eat less healthy and you blow off workouts a lot more. I found. So I'm trying to find, 
I guess I w- I'm trying to find that happy medium between lazy hobby jogger and, you know, stressed, pressure filled elite somewhere where I feel like I, I there's some accountability, at least to myself, um, but I'm not, you know, living that that really pressure filled lifestyle of a, of a pro athlete. Got it. So you talked about you want you kind of envisioned a three hour ish marathon going into Honolulu. So for the first 10 miles, and I was listening to your um, your interview on the See Tolly Run podcast, which was, you know, she does a great job. And obviously she had a phenomenal running career as well. You talked about how your first 10 miles, you're just like joking around, you're feeling super comfortable. And then you then did, you basically did what every dedicated amateur runner hopes to do is that all of a sudden you kind of negative split the second 10 miles for you. Was that did you have that as a race tactic going in or was that just a result of how you really just a result of how I was feeling? I I just said to myself, go really easy those first 10 miles because it's a long, long run. Um, And I was holding myself back a bit. And like I said, just kind of joking around with people around me. And then I realized like, if I'm going to, if I'm going to get this thing done, I need to start putting in some work. And so it kind of naturally just evolved. I stopped talking. I, I got a little more focused um, I chewed a piece of run gum and I just, you know, started moving. I, I went from running kind of seven minute pace down to six twenties and six thirties. And there is some economy of, of pace for me at that, at that speed. You know, I, I think that in it, my mechanics work a little bit better at that pace. So I felt like I could comfortably hold that for another 10 miles. And then I knew the last six would be a, a struggle because no matter how slow or how fast you run, you know, once you get to mile 20, you really, you've really put a lot of work in and your legs are going to be tired and you're going to, you're going to be tired. And so that was really, I don't know if it was my plan so much as just be conservative for the first 10 and then see where you're at. And, uh, and, and I felt good. So I, I let my legs open up a little bit. I love your quote about the stride. I, I saw a recent quote from a, a professional coach and the person escapes me right now, but they said, if you want to see something funny, watch a sprinter try to run slow or watch a slow runner yeah, try to sprint because they're because in either in either way their stride is going to look well and it's funky. almost harder for them they're fighting their natural mechanics you know uh, if you tried to watch usain bolt go for an easy five mile run i bet it would look hilarious and if you asked uh you know a true ultra marathoner to sprint 100 it would be cringeworthy so you've got to you've got to re- take you've really got to appreciate just how specific some of these athletes are you know and one of the one of the things about being an 800 meter runner is I'm a bit of a hybrid, you know, I'm not going to be able to effortlessly click off 440 miles. Um, and I'm not going to be able to run a sub 10 second hundred, but I kind of have this, the, this rare selection of gears where I could give you a 23 second, 200. And I could also give you uh, you know, a three hour marathon. Yeah. I mean, you, you showed that. And when you were doing the marathon, were you actively looking at your watch as you went or were you, you keeping track of your I had a GPS way? watch and I was also looking at the running time when I saw uh, mile markers and that played with my head a lot because they weren't synced up really well. You know, nothing against GPS t- technology. I think we need it, but it's never 100% accurate. And as it got more and more off, it really frustrated me. And so I tried to stay focused on the mile markers when I saw them and uh, and I knew roughly what kind of pace I wanted to be at. Yeah. Okay. So, and for you, cause you're such an experienced runner, are you able to judge your pace by stride length or is it more for you judging exertion? Your, your breath? Yeah, definitely exertion, not breath or stride length. Just, just how, how hard am I working right now? And, 
Uh, I knew, you know, I think conversational pace, and maybe that's part of breath, is a really good indicator of exertion. And uh, if I'm if I'm joking around and chatting with the people around me, I can almost guarantee it's it's slower than seven minute pace. And if I'm not real chatty, then I'm probably running sub seven minute miles. Got it. And then you just said, you know, when you hit mile 20, that's when it starts to get tough. But for you, it seemed like the wall came right at the end, mile 25. I mean, you are literally almost in dis, you know, kind of like a sight distance of the uh, finish line when, when the, the wall I wouldn't hit call you. it a wall. I'd call it a hill. And anyone who's run Honolulu <laughs> understands what I'm talking about. There is a giant hill at mile 25 that really just stops you in your tracks. And I was, I was right on pace and, and, uh, you know, hadn't even slowed down more than about 10 seconds per mile at that point. And I was pretty confident I was going to break three if I just maintained my pace, but this hill just took it out of me. And it's a long sustained 1200 meter hill. And, uh, I went from running six forty fives to running it. I think I ran like an eight, eight thirty that last mile, uh, 20 mile 25, but then to, to, to really, you know, reiterate my point that it wasn't hitting the wall. I came back and ran a sub seven minute mile for mile 26. So I was definitely comfortable running that pace. It's just that that hill took it out of me. It, it, it almost stopped me in my tracks. That's interesting. And, and at that point in a marathon, almost just about any marathon, but especially a big one like Honolulu, like you mentioned, has you know 20,000 people in it. Um, you have a lot of support there. Was it unique for you to be able to kind of experience the fan support in real time i mean were you when you run a diamond league event can you feel the fans around you or are you so zoned in you, you definitely feel you the understand? energy around you but you don't really hear any one specific voice but when you're out on that marathon course and uh, i had done a lot to let everybody know that i was going to be out there and that i was going to need their support i had so many people saying go nick you can do this you know as late as like mile 2020 or 21 uh honolulu is kind of cool it has an out and back where you where you can see a lot of your competitors as as um as you double back and so many people were there to cheer me on it it really did help and i i really appreciated the people around me and the people that that were um you know still coming out onto the the out and back cheering me on and just giving me you know encouragement now, did it give you a boost or did it just feel good i know to put it in perspective i've run two marathons and in one of them Right near the end, I had like an issue kind of similar to the one that you had in your half marathon where like I kind of jammed up my knee and it was kind of messing with me. So like the last mile, it was you running through this downtown area and all of a sudden it's like, all right, goodbye pain. It just felt like a whole different world. Like, did you have one of those types of experiences? No. Uh, and perhaps that's because Honolulu is very, uh, it's very well spread out in the last few miles. So there were people, but not, you know, the masses that get you, your adrenaline really pumping. I'm told that, you know, coming down Boylston street in Boston is, is one of those, those real euphoric, uh, adrenaline type filled moments where as the people cheer you on. But, uh, no, I, I would just say I had this steady level of support and it, it made me smile and made me feel happy. But I also, I also knew that I could do it. You know, once I got to mile 20, I'm like, there's absolutely nothing that can stop me from finishing this. And, and I do kind of wonder how much farther I could have kept going. I've heard from survival experts and nutritionists and physiologists that say, you know, that feeling you have when you're at a marathon, you're actually only 40% through completely exhausting yourself to the point of death, but it doesn't feel that way. I mean, when you finish a marathon, you feel like I, I am spent, there is nothing left in the tank, but 
the reality is you've only barely, barely really begun. You're not even halfway through the tank. Yeah, I love that quote. I know David Goggins is a big, you know, a big proponent of that. And you know, anyone in the ultra community knows him and his uh, his exploits. And that's, that's one of his big taglines. And it is so true. But at the same time, when you're experiencing that extreme fatigue, it doesn't it doesn't ring true in the moment. It's one of those things where, you know, it's almost like you can you understand it academically, but living it can be a whole different Absolutely. And you just you just really I think it's so fun to test yourself and, and for humans to test themselves to just redefine what you're capable of. I re, I just was so on a high for a week after that, that I pushed myself that hard and I really found my limits. And I think that's what's so addicting about marathoning is now that I've done it, I want to, I want to prove that I can do better. And, and so that's my goal now is to train for a spring marathon and hopefully crack that three hour mark. Yeah. And I'm excited to talk to you about that spring marathon. You're going to make the announcement tomorrow live um was it is it live on instagram how are you how are you, how are you i think we'll, we'll go tomorrow? live on instagram and facebook simultaneously yeah all right so that, that's wonderful and we're gonna you're gonna announce it here too but we won't actually broadcast it till next monday so uh we're not gonna you know give anyone a sneak preview or anything like that but one more question about honolulu though is you mentioned a couple times just the pain associated with the end of a marathon and just you know obviously you're completing something that's, that's fairly difficult Yet at the same time, you've also experienced that same sort of feeling in your previous efforts, whether that's, you know, race day or, you know, in different workouts you've done. How would you compare the pain of a marathon to some of the other workouts or races you've done? Uh, I would almost call them apples and oranges. I would say it's, you know, running a marathon is as similar to 800 meter training or, or running as it is to uh, equestrian riding. You know, it's like two totally different things. Mm -hmm. And I, I, it's so silly because they're both running, but 800 meter running is ballistic. It's all out. It's panicked from the gun. It's a minute and 45 seconds. Marathoning is much more similar to some of the outdoor activities I like, like backpacking um, and, and ski mountaineering, where I'm out there for hours and hours at a time. Uh, I remember as I was preparing for Honolulu, I like to do a lot of mountaineering and in August I actually climbed Mount Rainier and I, I wanted, I wanted to do oh, wow. it in one s slow, steady push. And I did it in a 21 hour round trip, um, up and down 9,000 vertical feet, 21 straight hours of climbing. And when I got done, I just hung my head. I was exhausted threw my bag. down. I said, there is no way that a marathon could be that difficult. And I, and I, after, now that I've actually done it, I can say there it's not. Climbing Rainier was way harder than than running a marathon, and uh, and I think that a lot of people kind of put me on blast saying, "Well, you don't know, you haven't run a marathon." And now that I have, I can say, you know, you, go test yourself on one of these mountains. Climbing for twenty one straight hours is extremely difficult, and I think that there's something to be said for for being in the mountains and testing yourself that way, both mentally and physically. Oh yeah, absolutely, and emotionally, emotionally too. I think that's because right? if you're you can really push yourself. Yeah, and I think that level. when I say it was much more harder, it was longer for sure. It was slower. But the real the real difficulty was the emotional part. You know, there were moments when I was on Rainier where I honestly was afraid for my life. I was never afraid for my life on the streets of Honolulu. <laughs> no, that I can imagine that that, that was a, a pretty safe area. That's for sure. Um, and while I've never done anything like climbing Mount Rainier, um, 
is certainly understandable, especially when you talk about just being awake for 21 straight hours. My God, I can't, I can sit on the couch for 21 straight hours. I would feel like that was yeah, exhausting. You, you climb, never, never mind. Uh, you climb straight through the night and yeah. it's just, it's, it's eerie and beautiful at the same time. And you're fighting, you know, you, you sit down to rest. I remember sitting down about 12,000 feet on the side of this glacier and I, it was probably four in the morning. I hadn't slept in a very long time. And I just laid down for a minute and I thought I could just fall asleep right here, you know, and never wake up. But you just, you can't let yourself do that. You have to fight through it and you have to keep pushing. And, and uh, if on a marathon course, if you, you know, get tired and you want to pull out and tap, tap out, you can get someone to come pick you up and drive you back to where your clothes are. Um, not so on a mountain like Rainier, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult to orchestrate a rescue. You've got to get yourself up and down that mountain if you want to live. That's a great point. I love that. Well, it's, it's certainly, you've definitely lived a very layered life. You've done a lot of different things, um, both in the public eye and out of it. And one of those is starting Rungum. You mentioned it, you, you know, you, you, you did a little, little plug there in your little marathon recap, which I can appreciate. You popped a little well, run I gum what mile I preach. That's why we made and, it um, so that people that need to boost energy and focus <laughs> can use it. And I use it every single day. There you go. And so you, you started the company company back in 2014. Um, and for you, what was it like in terms of being, you know, being at the highest level in your sport and yet trying to take on another endeavor and not only just anything, something where, you know, the majority of, you know, businesses, you know, lose traction or die out in their first three years. So obviously there's a lot of pressure there when you start that up. What was your thinking in terms of, coordinating kind of the, the end of your career and picking up the beginning of this. Yeah, that's adventure. a great question. You know, I saw, I saw the writing on the wide, I just turned 30 and I had my first real injury. And I thought to myself, best case scenario, I'm only going to run pro for a few more years. And then, you know, this incredible paycheck that I've been getting from sponsors, is going to come to an end. And it's kind of, it's a terrifying thought, you know, because it's the only way I'd really earned money for the majority of my adult life. And I went to my coach and I said, Hey, we need to start. And he's my business partner as well. I said, we need to start diversifying a little bit because just the running income's not going to last forever. And he had been coaching me to understand that from day one, but I, I had this idea for run gum. It was a product that I had been tinkering with out of necessity that I wanted personally for my training and racing, you know, an energy gum. And I said to Sam, I said, I think it's time to bring run gum to market. And he agreed uh, and of course, we didn't call it run gum at the time. We called it awesome caffeine chewing gum. And, uh, and that I'm surprised. What's that? Stick around. <laughs> I'm surprised. That yeah, name I know. Stick but around. We, we just had this idea. And <laughs> finally, in the summer of 2014, we had the time and money and energy to bring it to market. And the idea was really just to test the concept. It was to say, okay, are people going to going to subscribe to this idea of getting their energy in a, in a more convenient and affordable way? We, we certainly thought they would, but we had to we had to see what the market said. And so we brought it to market in October 2014, and people just couldn't get enough of it. And it was so rewarding to find that I was going to be successful in something that wasn't just running around in circles, that I could be successful as an entrepreneur as well. Now, when you say you were tinkering with it, were you literally the person who invented Yes, I mean, I, I was messing around with different gums and different chemicals that I wanted, stimulants that I wanted, caffeine, taurine, and B vitamins, namely. But to do it in a really palatable way, a way that tasted great, 
you know, I, I had to recognize my own limitations and go out and find a, a contract manufacturer that could help me with the R&D and actually create a really great tasting, great chewing piece of energy gum. Uh, you know, you, we pack ours full of a proprietary blend of, of caffeine, which is a very, very bitter substance, you know, taurine, which is an amino acid and B vitamins, which have their own unique flavors. Um, to make that taste really good, it can be very challenging. And I think we crush it. I, our first our first runs weren't great. They didn't chew great. They didn't taste great. But we recently reformulated. And if people go out and, and try run gum, I think they're going to be pleasantly surprised. It not only tastes great, it chews great, but you also get this incredible boost in energy and focus from the energy blend. Yeah, I mean, I know some runners who use it, and they, they speak very highly of it. Frankly, there's a, there's a local runner here in Rhode Island who's a, who's definitely a, a very high-level runner around here named Bronson Venable, who loves the stuff. My goodness. I was texting with him back and forth today, and he's such a big fan of it. Um, you know, he's like a sub-15 5K guy. Um, and you know, he's a big fan of it. And for you, in terms of the entrepreneurship and in the business, there's so many different aspects to a business like this. What parts of it do you feel like you're best suited for? And that's, those are the parts Yeah, that it's so funny on. that you mentioned that because – in a startup, everybody wears multiple hats, and it's it's not necessarily what you want to do. Uh, it's what you're best at, and I am really bad with numbers. And if you want, if if, if this company was dependent on me handling the budget, uh, it would not. We would have gone bankrupt in the first six months. So, fortunately, my business partner Sam is very good at that, and so he handles the numbers and the finances. And I spent the better part of a decade learning all about PR and brand building. I mean, pro runners think that they don't necessarily pick up marketable skills uh, while they're being pro runners. But if they if they kind of rethink their reshape their thinking and realize that what they're doing is learning a, a crash course on brand building and PR and marketing, they're they're creating their own company, their own brand my brand was nick simmons 800 meter runner and i learned how to deal with media and and how to generate pr and earned media and everything that goes into that and so that's really my focus my specialty is handling all the pr and marketing uh for run gum and you know this this podcast is a perfect example uh you, i think you you wanted to talk to me because i did something neat that your listeners would identify with and that's run a marathon and that's a, an example of doing something that I just happen to love that is also great for the company's identity and and can earn us some awesome media like this this great opportunity that you've given me. Well, that's a good point. And then as you know, it's like that can only take you so far. The product is ultimately going to you know live and die by its own you know its yeah. own merits, no matter how good the marketing sure. is. So it is interesting how you reformulated it and you know constantly trying to improve the product and go from there. And and then also. In terms of getting into stores, I know you're now in REI, which is amazing, and you know 7-Elevens over out in Hawaii, which was a, an interesting um, partnership you did with with uh, you know going out with Honolulu Marathon. In terms of the day to day salesmanship of the product, is that something where like, hey, this you you hire for that, or how do you even kind of start that distribution? Yeah, initially. We, it was kind of everybody was part of sales. You know, we were all calling on running specialty stores and we were all focused on driving e-commerce. But you get to a point where, you know, you've got we're in nearly every single run specialty store. And we kind of looked at each other like, well, what's next? And none of us are real sales specialists. And that's when we brought on this, a director of sales. And um, Adrian Sherrod is our director of sales. And he's he's the one that's really pushing us into new frontiers. He landed that REI deal for us. And pushing us into 7-Eleven and taking our brand to places that we never really 
dreamed we could go. I mean, we always wanted to go head to head with Red Bull and Monster and Five Hour, but those are big players, and and you really need to learn your business and learn your customer before you start, you know, trying to chip away at that market share. Right, and you have experience with brand building, like you mentioned, in terms of you know being a professional runner and trying to maximize it. And in that sense, it's no different than what you see Kara Goucher doing, Adam Goucher doing, Lauren Fleshman, Roma Gettigan, a series of people who are you know venturing off into different areas and trying to make the most of them. And yet, at the same time, you know you don't have it's not exactly apples to apples. So did you have anybody that you looked as a mentor or people you leaned on early in the process or even now that you really gained a lot of information and knowledge from? No, I guess if I was to say anyone, it would be coach Sam, my business partner. Um, and we're 50, 50 in Rungum as business partners. And he, he, from day one, the minute I graduated college, he said, you need to start thinking about building the Nick Simmons brand and be the guy that every company wants to work with define who you are as a person and as an athlete and make sure your fans know that. And, and I did that from day one. I, I saw social media as being such a great way to do that. And I embraced social media early on um, regardless of the platform. And, and, uh, and I've, I think been true to that, that brand identity that I wanted to be as a young 22 year old male, which was a guy that had, you know, wasn't just your, your quintessential like runner, who just ran around in circles and, and that's all he did. I, I have so many passions and I wanted to tell people about those passions. And um, so I'm a, you know, a, a guy that loves to travel, loves to fish, loves business. And uh, my followers kind of, I think, appreciate that about me. That's for sure. All right. So tomorrow you're making the announcement. We're not going to be broadcasting this till Monday. So where are you going to be running your next marathon? It has to be the place that I started my running career, and that's Eugene, Oregon. I love this city. I've called this place uh, home for the last 16 years, and it, it, I just really can't wait to uh, to run the Eugene Marathon. It's a flat, fast course, and it finishes on Hayward Field, which is you know like uh, you know like church to me, basically. Oh, that is fantastic! And you're right; there is a lot of symmetry there, and as as much of a no-brainer as that sounds and then just so the listeners know you did not tell me this before the podcast started i'm finding out <laughs> right now that this is where you're going yeah it's gotta um, be you know, that, that, that makes yeah i mean that makes all the sense in the world and yet you you definitely crowdsourced this uh you know this question you you reached out to you know twitter and instagram to find out where you should go you were weighing a couple options what were some of the ones that you were really thinking hard about and what ultimately swayed your decision yeah i mean i certainly thought about boston a lot of people said well you got to run boston and uh, i don't like their exclusive nature um i like an inclusive marathon like honolulu or eugene i thought about london but that's an awful lot of travel um a lot of people were directing me towards uh, grandma's which sounds like an awesome marathon um, and I've certainly thought about Boise, you know, that's where I really fell in love with running when I was a teenager, but there's something about Eugene. Just, I, I, I mean, I just love this community. It is, it is track town USA for a reason. And, uh, I, I started my pro running career. All of my very best running memories are from Hayward field. And I just love this idea to finish where it all started. I think actually the, the Eugene marathons, uh, motto is finish where it started. And it's just, it's just too perfect. <laughs> and why would this be the finish line for you? That's a great question. I actually, I actually put that out on social kind of cryptically that this is likely to be my last race ever. Um, I've accomplished most of my running goals, except for one now, which is to break it three hours in the marathon. And if I'm successful, 
uh, on April 29th at the Eugene Marathon. I break three. Um, I'm going to hang up my shoes for a while. There's there's a, an opportunity that's come my way um, that I need to go all in on. And I can't go into detail about that right now. Um, but on May 1st, you know, two days after the marathon, I'll, I'll be announcing exactly what that is. And running has been great to me, but it, it will actually be, um, you know, it, it will hold me back from this next opportunity that I want to seize upon. You mean being the co-host of the Rambling Runner Project? <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, let me ask you a couple more questions here about, about Eugene. So, you know, you have a few months now to get ready for this race. How is your training going to differ from um, the idealized training that you wanted to do for Honolulu but weren't able to do because of the injury? I'm going to really try to focus a bit more on this one. I'm not going to say that I'm going to going to train like a pro and do 90 mile weeks and eat, sleep and breathe running. But I want to, I want my training to be more honest. I want to get down closer to my target race weight of 160. Um, I'd like to start doubling again. I haven't doubled since I retired. And I think a few swim doubles and some lifting doubles could certainly help. Um, I think that if I make just, you know, a 10 or 20% more concerted effort to being a, a good runner then i can i can run around 250 to 255 and that was going to be my next question is that that the goal of breaking three is you know that big round number is nice and you were 35 seconds away from getting it last time but shoot man you ran through like a rain deluge you had hiccups in training like that might be the public goal but you mentioned before that you're a transparent guy like there has to be maybe a bigger goal than that i i would say there's a 99% probability that I run between 250 and 259. Um, you know, if I, let's say everything's just going perfect and I'm crushing workouts and I lean down really good, no doubt I can break 250. Uh, if, if you gave me two years and a million dollars and said, become the greatest marathoner you can be, um, I could get down to 230 probably, but I don't have the time and the money and the, 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 you know, desire to do that. So I think that with, um, Good training, not great training, but good training and good focus. I can run between 250 and 259 um, most days on a on a flat, fast course. You know, I need I do need some things to go my way. I need good weather in Eugene because it can be pretty nasty that time of year sometimes. Um, I need a great pair of shoes. I still haven't decided what shoes I'm going to wear yet, and uh, and I'll I'll need to to feel feel good on the day for sure. Well, you've been so generous with your time. I have two more questions for you, if you don't mind. Um, you mentioned earlier about the race weight. That I think you ran your first marathon around 170, so it would be kind of like a, you know, depending where you are now, but a 10-pound drop from where you were before. Yeah. So are you – but you're – you know, anyone who's seen a picture of you knows that you're a well-built, a well-built guy. So are you changing how you lift weights in this marathon buildup? Not really. I mean, lifting is actually people, it's kind of counterintuitive for for some body types, lifting leans you down. And I happen to be that kind of body type. If I lift a certain way, which is lightweight, lots of reps, um, and kind of keeping my heart, my heart rate up, it, it leans me down. So I won't change it too much. Um, I lift Mondays and Wednesdays, and I have a great lifting coach that, that's helped me for the last decade. But uh I won't, I won't change too much. Really for me, it's mostly dietary to be honest, between, between being 160 at race weight and being 170, I've never been one to watch my diet too closely. So little tweaks like cutting my beer intake in half and swapping out my potato chips for popcorn, little things like that. And I was shed weight pretty quickly. So, so from, from two beers down to one, is that what half means? Just, yeah. Just doing that alone. I mean, you, you got to <laughs> think about how many, how many calories and the alcohol we drink and, you know, greasy potato chips, small tweaks like that 
drinking a glass of water before each meal, little things like that make a huge difference. Good point. And who, uh, who's, who's helping you train? Who do you have a coach for this race? No, you know, Danny Mackey helped me run my three hour marathon in Honolulu. And I was very grateful uh, for the help. But for this one, I'm just kind of winging it. I, I think I know what I need to do to break three hours. And um, I'm, I'm so busy with run gum and, and travel that I don't want to be confined to a to a workout on a sheet of paper. I want to just wake up and, and know that I need to get the work in and, and kind of feel it out as I go along. Well, Nick, I'm so excited for you. This is a very interesting thing. I think it, it really is um, not only a great thing for Run Gum because there's going to be a lot of publicity around this, but just a great thing for you in particular. I, I can't think of the last time a, a, an ex-professional athlete took on something in an amateur capacity that, shoot, feels like just as exciting as some of their professional stuff. This is really, <laughs> uh, really interesting, if for no other reason than you're all of a sudden – getting involved in a sport that is, you know, the most popular sport in the world. Yeah. And I, I really do enjoy it. And, you know, I, again, I'm so excited about Eugene. I'm, I'm excited uh, for people to come out and experience this wonderful city. Um, every single person running the Eugene marathon will get a free pack of run gum. And uh, your listeners actually have a chance to win an all expense paid trip to come take part in the Eugene marathon and see my version of, of Eugene. Uh, if they go to rungum.com right now, they can sign up, uh, for the sweepstakes that we've partnered with a few companies to to provide an all expense paid trip to Eugene to run the marathon with me. So will they have to look for that on the website or will that be right in their face? It'll, it'll pop there? right up when they go to the rungum.com. Yeah. That's fantastic. Nick, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Good luck with the training. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Great questions. All right. Have a great day. Thanks.